A beautiful bride's fairy tale honeymoon ends with a bullet to her throat in the back of a taxi. But who pulled the trigger? The driver claims her new husband paid him to recruit the shooters. Her husband maintains he was framed. The assassins are pointing the finger at each other. Then there's a middleman who might actually be the kingpin. And just when you think you know who did it, you realize that everybody in this case is lying about something. So what really happened to Annie Dewani? Good to see you. I'm Chris, and this is True Crime Recaps. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, you're in the right place. Every week, my wife Amy and I are here recapping developing cases and shedding new light on old mysteries. We'd love to have you join us as we catch you up on some of the crazy twists and turns in this dangerous world. If you're tuning in on YouTube, take a second to hit subscribe and the bell so you don't miss a thing. And with that, our story starts with a wedding that almost didn't happen. Annie Hindocha was 27 in the late spring of 2009 when she met her Prince Charming, 38-year-old Shriyan Diwani. He was a dashing, single Brit from a wealthy, respected Hindu family in Bristol. He helped run their multi-million dollar chain of care homes in the United Kingdom. She was a beautiful, outgoing Indian woman from a close-knit family living in Sweden. She was based in Stockholm working as a product designer. On paper, they were the perfect couple, and you can't do better than perfect, right? So even though it wasn't ideal, they started a long-distance relationship. They didn't see each other often, and when they did, Shrian kept her at arm's length in the bedroom. He tried to excuse it by telling her he was going through infertility treatments that tired him out. This was a shock to Annie. Starting a family was what she wanted more than anything. She broke it off in December 2009, but Shrian wasn't ready to let her go. After weeks of assuring her the treatments were working, she took him back. But he insisted they hold off on intimacy until they were married. She was determined to make it work. In March 2010, she moved in with her cousin near London to be closer to him. But the move only led to more arguments. She wasn't sure they had much of a future together, but three months after she picked up and moved to the UK, out of the blue, Shrian asked her family for their blessing to propose. Now, this should have been one of the happiest moments of their relationship, but it was far from it. The engagement brought out the worst in him. Shrian was controlling, cold, and critical of her appearance and habits. He once said he wanted to turn her from an ugly duckling into a swan. Was this really the man she wanted to spend her life with? No. She wrote him an email calling off their engagement. Shrian promised to change. He already had broken an engagement in his past, and another one would shame his family. So she reconsidered, and he whisked her away to Paris in a private jet to celebrate with a $40,000 diamond engagement ring. A three-day lavish wedding in Mumbai was planned for the end of October in 2010. Hundreds of guests were expected to attend. Now, behind the scenes, the relationship was falling apart. Only weeks before the wedding, Annie threw her engagement ring in his face and called it off. Was it the stress of planning the wedding? The people around them thought so, and she was convinced to stay. But not even the ceremony seemed to smooth things over between them. Her cousin remembers the moment when Annie told her that Shrian's first words to her as her husband were, Your sorry is not proper. Later, she confided that they were just acting out the rest of the wedding. She endured the ceremonies with a smile, but everyone who knew her could see she wasn't happy. Then it was time for the honeymoon. Destination? South Africa. It was Shrian's idea. He wanted to surprise her with it. He liked the way the country's initials matched their names. 
Their future looked as sparkly as her diamond ring. There would be homes in both London and Bristol. She was already sketching her design vision, right down to the his and hers walk-in closets. On paper, the perfect couple was destined for the perfect life. But appearances can be deceiving. Before jetting off to South Africa, the newly married couple went home to Bristol to check on construction, but things still weren't right between them. Annie's text to her cousin said things like, I don't want to go anywhere with him. I want a divorce, and crying is my new hobby. And it wasn't just her. Two days before their honeymoon, they were emailing each other statements like, You did say if you saw in a crystal ball how this marriage would be like, then you wouldn't have gotten married. Shrian replied hours later, I did not say I regret things. And the next morning, Annie wrote, I don't want an insecure man or a man that feelings don't come natural or that you have to force yourself. I am ready to pack and leave, and this is not a joke. Divorce wasn't an option he wanted to talk about. The Diwanis were a well-respected Hindu family. It wouldn't look good for them if his new wife left him. With forced smiles on their faces, they boarded a plane and flew into Cape Town for their honeymoon. But they didn't stay there long. Their first stop was a four-day safari in the National Forest. On the second day, she sent a text to her cousin. It read, What shall I do? It's been one day and I feel exactly the same as I did before. I'm really trying. He is a very nice guy in all the ways, but I don't feel happy at all. The next day, she got another text. This one read, It's going better than before. Hard to explain, but I'll call you as soon as I return. Hate the word divorce. Three days later, Annie would be dead. And just before 8 a.m. on Sunday, November 14, 2010, a silver VW Chiron minivan was discovered. It was abandoned on the side of the road in the middle of a dangerous part of Cape Town. This in itself is bizarre. In this area, vehicles like this would be stripped down, the parts sold, and frame burnt. But the VW appeared to be completely untouched, except for one horrible thing. Annie's body was slumped in the back seat. Her Armani watch, diamond tennis bracelet, evening bag, and phone were gone, but her black cocktail dress and strappy heels looked just as they had on the CCTV footage from the night before. If not for the blood, she could have been sleeping off too much champagne. Twelve hours earlier, the 28-year-old bride had been toasting her new husband in the bar of their five-star hotel, a luxurious tourist destination, 27 minutes, and an entire world away from the place where she was found. On Friday, November 12, 2010, just two days earlier, Annie and Shrian returned to Cape Town. As they were walking through the airport, Shrian spotted a shuttle driver. This man was Zola Tongo. He was a 29-year-old, well-educated man with years of experience driving tourists around Cape Town. He was an ambitious guy. He just started his own shuttle service, but he was waiting on the permit he needed to join the other taxis waiting in the pickup area outside. To get around that, he approached passengers inside the airport. Now, if you've ever traveled internationally, you know this is one of those things tourists are warned against. Taking a ride with an unregistered driver can be dangerous. But Tonga was well-dressed and spoke perfect English, the type who made tourists feel safe and comfortable. Plus, he was cheaper than the taxis outside. Shrian liked that. As Tongo loaded their designer luggage into his VW Chiron, he talked up his services, hoping they might need a driver while they were in town. Their hotel, the Cape Grace, offered BMWs to shuttle tourists around the attractions and swanky restaurants near the hotel. 
the kind of places wealthy young couples like the Dewanis would want to go. But if they needed a ride anywhere else, and it was rare that someone wanted to leave the tourist district, but if and when they did, they had to get a shuttle on their own. From here on out, it's impossible to know where the truth begins and the lies end. The only guideposts of truth in this maze come from the CCTV footage, audio recordings, and cell phone data. When the VW pulled up to Cape Grace 20 minutes later, CCTV caught Annie climbing out of the backseat and going into the hotel. Five minutes later, Shrian follows her inside. Not long after that, he's back on camera, heading for Tongo's VW waiting nearby. The two men talk for about 12 minutes before Shrian returns to the hotel. Now, if you ask Tongo what the two of them were talking about, he'd tell you what he told police. Shrian asked if he knew someone who could do a job for him. He wanted a lady, quote, taken off the scene. And it was supposed to look like a random hijacking. At first, Tongo's response was about what you'd expect. He didn't know anyone who did things like that. But then, for some reason, he changed his tune. Yes, he said. On second thought, he did have a friend who could help. In exchange, Shrian promised money and a leg up for his new business. He said he'd tell his rich tourist friends about his shuttle service, and they in turn would recommend Tongo to their friends, and soon his business would be booming. He was willing to pay 15,000 rands for it. 5,000 of that was earmarked for Tongo for his help. That's about a thousand U.S. dollars. But that aspect of the conversation slipped Tongo's mind more than once when he was questioned later. His memory also got fuzzy about the timing of the hit and who exactly the lady target was supposed to be. And those were just a few of the details that changed frequently over the course of this case. As for Shrian, he didn't mention this meeting at all. Not to the police, not to his family or Annie's, not to anyone. At trial, four years later, long after the CCTV footage was found, he said they were discussing a helicopter ride, a surprise for his new wife. He said he would pay 15,000 rands for it. Of course, the five-star hotel he was staying in could have booked it in five minutes with the best of the best, but he wasn't going to get it for just 15,000 rands, so was he just cheap? Was he hoping a local could get him a better deal? Or was Tongo telling the truth about those 12 minutes together? Think about it while we keep moving through the events of that Friday. At this point in our story, the Diwanis are settling into their room, Annie is doing her hair, and the two of them are deciding where to have dinner that night. They ended up walking to a fancy sushi place on the waterfront nearby. But for now, let's get back to Tongo. After he dropped them off, he made his way to another popular spot in Cape Town, the Coliseum Hotel, where his friend, Monde Mbalumbo, worked as a front desk clerk. That hotel also had security cameras, but unlike the Cape Grace, audio around the front desk was recorded. And we can assume that's why Mbalumbo and Tongo walked away from the desk together out of range, which means, like everything else in this case, we can't know for sure what they discussed. Both Tongo and Mbalumbo say he was there to recruit potential hitmen, but the details of the discussion vary. Mbalumbo says Tongo told him a man wanted to have his wife killed. Tongo claims he didn't know who the target was, and both their memories get very fuzzy when asked if the price was discussed. Mbalumbo first claimed he gave Tongo a name and washed his hands of it. Later, as more CCTV was uncovered, he admitted that he had a bigger role. 
The two men came from similar backgrounds, and they were just about the same age. Just like Tongo, Mbalumbo was gainfully employed, educated from a nice family, and he'd never been in trouble with the police before. But he knew a criminal. The name he gave Tongo was Mzawamadota Kwabe. In actuality, Kwabe was not a hardened criminal either, but he hung out with criminals. At the time, he worked part-time for his mother's meat delivery business. But just like the others, he was educated and well-liked. And for some reason, he was up for the job. But he wanted to bring someone else into the deal, a friend by the name of Zolaila Mengini. This guy did have a history with the police, but his record was limited to mostly petty crimes, nothing violent. He must have been ready to move up a rung in the underworld, because he was in. And later that Friday night, November 12th, Tongo got a call from Shrian. This is backed up by a cell phone record. Unfortunately, there's no way to know for sure what they talked about. Tongo said Shrian was calling to make sure the job was a go. He said Shrian wanted to know if they would take dollars as payment. Answer? No. They wanted South African currency. Rands, which meant Shrian would have to change some money. He wanted a place with a lower exchange rate than the hotel. Tongo took this to mean that he didn't want to have to show his passport. As it happened, he did know a place, a black market shop in a local mall. They made a plan to go there the next day. Shrian never mentioned this conversation. He did say that he went to a mall to exchange money so he could get a lower rate. He did not mention it was Tongo who took him there. And here's why we know he didn't say anything about it. Annie's cousin secretly recorded a conversation between her, Shrian, his brother, and her father nine days after the murder. She had her reasons to be suspicious of him. And we'll get into those a little later. But for now, all you need to know is that she gave the recording to the police and it became part of the trial. According to the transcript, he said he exchanged the money on Friday and spent Saturday afternoon getting a haircut while Annie was by the pool. He was asked point blank if he spoke to Tongo on Friday night, and he said no. Why would he leave out that detail? Was it the trauma blurring his memory, an innocent omission by a man who had just lost his wife, or something more sinister? CCTV caught Shrian leaving the Cape Grace in Tongo's VW on Saturday, November 13th at noon. 45 minutes later, he returns. What they talked about is anyone's guess. Tongo claims they used the time to finalize the plan. And here are the broad strokes. They were going to be robbed. Tongo and Shrian would be pushed out of the car. Annie was to be shot somewhere else. The payoff would be in the VW glove compartment. 45 minutes later, security footage shows Shrian arrive back at the hotel. Another camera caught him hurrying down the hall to his room. Then he reappears a few minutes later in shorts and goes back to the pool to meet back up with Annie. From there, Tongo says he went to meet up with Kwabe and Minjini to brief them on the plan and decide where the fake carjacking would happen. As the sun set that night, their intended victim put on her little black dress and her sparkly heels and set out for a night on the town with her husband. But he says he had something for her to hold for him. Remember that surprise helicopter ride Shrian says he exchanged money to pay for? Well, at his trial, he said he was planning to give Tongo the payment for it when he picked them up that night. But he couldn't hold thousands of rands in his pockets, so he says he asked Annie to put the wad of cash in her evening bag. Now, wouldn't that have ruined the surprise? What reason did he give her for having all that cash? Of course, the reason why he did it only matters if it's true. So keep that in mind as we move through this. 
They were dressed to the nines, but they didn't end up anywhere fancy. Shrian says they wanted to be driven around so they could see the lights of Cape Town and maybe try a restaurant off the beaten path. Around 8, CCTV recorded them leaving the hotel and climbing into Tongo's VW. Before that, they were caught on a security camera in the bar toasting each other, snapping pictures and looking every inch the happy couple. The trio drove around for about an hour and a half with Tongo pointing out some sights. Then they got off the highway and drove into Gugulethu. The area is not your typical tourist destination. It's dangerous. Even most locals try to avoid it, especially at night. But later, in that secretly recorded conversation I mentioned earlier, Shrian said Annie wanted to see it. Later, he said it was Tongo's idea. But at first, he said the two of them were hoping to see the not-so-touristy part of Cape Town, and Tongo took them there. Either way, it's odd. It was strange that Annie would ask to go there. She was dressed for a nice night out, and her cousin says that's not something she would ever ask to do. It's even stranger for an experienced tour guide to risk his client's safety and take them there at night. And two more red flags in this bizarre case, but they drove right through without incident. Then it was time for dinner. They wanted sushi, but instead of turning around and going back toward their hotel and the ritzy restaurants on the waterfront, they kept going in the opposite direction. Cell phone records show multiple texts going back and forth between Tongo and Shrian during the drive. Again, there's no way of knowing the truth of what was said, but according to Tongo, there were a couple of issues. First and foremost, he claims Shrian wanted to know why his wife was still alive. The attack was supposed to happen on their trip through Gugulethu. A, a flurry of calls and texts between Tongo and Mbalumbo, Kwabe, and Minjini followed. Now, eventually, he got an answer. The guys couldn't get a ride there, so they were running late. At least, that's the story the prosecution ended up with at trial. The details of those calls, combined with CCTV and audio recording from the front desk of the Coliseum Hotel, showed Mbalumbo working the phones, telling the guys the thing they talked about had to happen that night. But didn't Tongo say they were all planning on the hit that night? He did, but that call makes it sound like they weren't clear on the timing. So does that mean Mbalumbo ordered them there? Because... If he did, doesn't that make him more than just a middleman? There was also the question of the money, and this gets even more murky. Tongo claims he texted Shrian, don't forget the money. According to him, Shrian told him it was in an envelope in one of those pouch things on the back of the front passenger seat. At 9.33 p.m., CCTV captured the three of them walking through an outdoor mall, and Tongo appears to be leading them to the Surfside restaurant. It's older and casual, not known for any specific dish, certainly not a tourist destination. Uh, let me put it this way. Annie was dressed for a fabulous night out. At that restaurant, she was way overdressed. It just wasn't that kind of a place. An hour later, they hustled out. From there, they headed back toward the hotel, 30 miles away, and their route took them through Gugulethu again. This was yet another red flag for investigators. One trip to that area was strange, but two? And this time, they wouldn't be so lucky. 35 minutes later, a little after 11, Kwabe and Mungini ambushed the car at the intersection they'd agreed on. Tongo had activated the child locks. Shrian and Annie couldn't open the back doors from the inside. Mungini put his hand on the windshield and ordered Tongo to stop. And here's another place where stories don't line up. 
Tongo says he was pulled out and pushed into the back seat with Annie and Shrian. Shrian says someone pushed him down on top of her, so they were sort of lying down on the back seat together. He thinks it was one of the shooters sitting next to him. But what we do know is that Kwabe got behind the wheel. At some point down the road, Mangini ordered everyone to hand over their valuables. Jewelry, watches, phones, and money. That's a key point, because without those phones, there's no way of knowing what the text between them all actually said. And they've never been recovered. Tongo was shoved out behind the Gugulethu police station, and they kept going. Kwabe claims Tongo told him the money for the job was behind the passenger seat as he was leaving. And doesn't the police station seem like an odd place to drop off a hostage? But he went inside and reported the carjacking. He gave a signed statement, and it didn't mention his involvement at all, just that he was robbed and his car and passengers were taken. Meanwhile, back in the VW, Annie managed to hide her engagement ring underneath of her. And Shrian must have seen exactly where she put it because later he called the police and told them where to find it, which they thought was pretty strange. But in every step of this story, you've heard how frugal he seemed to be. Uh, Is that the right word? So I guess he didn't want to lose that $40,000 ring as well as his wife. Hmm. Well, in any case, the scene in the car was as horrible as you can imagine. Annie was screaming, begging the men to let them go. Shrian remembers hearing them say they just wanted to rob them and they'd let them go, but not together, in separate locations. According to the transcript of that recorded conversation, he said they wanted Annie to stop screaming, but she wouldn't. The last thing he said to her was to be quiet and not say anything. Then he says they forced him out of the car window at gunpoint because the back doors were still child-locked. Apparently, they couldn't figure out how to release it. Annie was left alone. Shrian banged on the doors until someone opened up and called the police for him. Fifteen minutes later, investigators showed up and took him back to the hotel. Tongo was already there with the police making a show of frantically looking for him and Annie. The hotel receptionist remembers the moment when Shrian arrived. He was calmer than you might expect from a man who had just gone through the night he had just had. But then again, everyone handles trauma in their own ways. The hotel opened up a meeting room for the police to gather, and the search was on for Annie. The hope was that she'd been dropped off too, and all they had to do was find her. Around 10 a.m. on November 14th, Shrian got the horrible news about his wife. Her father was already on his way from Sweden. On a layover in Amsterdam, he learned his daughter had been shot and killed. And two days later, at 1.45 in the afternoon, Tonga was caught on CCTV strolling into the Cape Grace lobby. Shrian was there with Annie's father, but when Tonga walked in, he can be seen silently standing up and walking in Tonga's direction with a large white envelope or package of some kind. The two men didn't speak, but Tongo follows Shrian into the office business center and out of sight of the cameras. A few minutes later, Shrian comes out. He's not holding the package anymore, and he walks away down the hall in the opposite direction. Tongo appears with the envelope stuffed into the back of his pants. He goes into the bathroom, and when he comes out, the item is in his hand. He exits the hotel. What on earth was that about? Again, we only have the word of the two men to go on. Tongo says he was there to get the money that was owed to him for the hit and the rest of the money owed to the two hijackers. He claims Shrian shorted them. They were promised 15000 but only ten was in the car. Shrian says the whole encounter was completely innocent. He owed Tongo money for Saturday's trip. Yes, the one in which his wife was murdered. He said he felt sorry for him and wanted to pay him. Really? 
This from a man who supposedly went out of his way to find a bargain basement helicopter ride? Seems strange. But then again, who knows? There was no hard evidence to believe one man over the other. Later that day, Shrian and his father-in-law took Annie's body with them back to the UK for her funeral. This was a point of contention. After all, Annie and Shrian were married less than three weeks. Her family wanted to have her funeral in Sweden, where she'd spent most of her life. But he was her husband, so they let him take charge. Her funeral was November 21st. 1,500 people were expected, but before it began, her female family members wanted to spend some time with her, getting her ready, talking to her. But Shrian said no. So her sister took it on herself to make a private arrangement with the funeral director. But Shrian interrupted the family moment and freaked out. The way they tell it, he took the personal mementos they brought and threw them on the floor. Then he threatened to cancel the funeral unless he got an apology from her father. He was stunned, but he gave the sorry he asked for, and the ceremony went on. But that outburst, combined with his lack of emotion and his strange story, made them question everything. And that's why her cousin recorded the conversation that was supposed to clear the air between the families. And meanwhile, back in South Africa, things were moving surprisingly fast. The area has thousands of carjackings a year, and most are never solved. But in this case, by November 17th, they had Imanjeni in custody. They tracked him down off the palm print he left behind on the windshield. And he tried to throw them off the trail, but within a day, they had the name of his accomplice, Kwabe. He quickly gave up Mbalumbo, who pointed them toward Tongo. And Tongo turned himself in, but he didn't come alone. A couple of days earlier, he had gotten himself a lawyer, but when he realized that the police had all three of his accomplices, they started talking plea deal. In exchange for 18 years behind bars, he told them the whole thing was Shrian's idea. Kwabe backed him up. In exchange for a 25-year sentence, he told them Imanjini pulled the trigger, but the whole plan was cooked up by Shrian. Mbalumbo pointed the finger at Shrian also and agreed to testify against everyone involved. In exchange, he was promised zero jail time. The police ran with their stories, but here's the thing. Kwabe was lying. Well, they all were lying about one thing or another, but let's start with Kwabe. He claimed he saw Mangini turn around and shoot Annie from the front passenger seat, but that would have been an impossible shot. She had contact wounds on her hands, chest, and neck from the gunpowder. The weapon would have had to be touching her to make those marks. She also had fingerprint impressions on her lower leg, like someone tried to drag her out of the VW. To grab her leg like that and make the shot, someone would have had to open the back door and lean in. And based on the wounds, her hands were up near her chest, and the gun would have had to been shoved between her hands and her chest and fired once. That's the scenario Mangini described when he was arrested. In his version of the story, Kwabe stopped the car, opened the back door, grabbed a bag out of Annie's hands, and pulled the trigger once, which makes you wonder. Maybe she did have the cash in her purse like Shrian said. But if that's true, then why did he tell the police that she only had makeup and her phone in her bag? He gave them a list of their valuables, but he never mentioned the cash at all. As for Kwabe, he was wearing yellow rubber gloves the whole time. Shrian mentioned them to the police and in various statements. Kwabe led them to the gloves where he tossed them on the side of the road. When they tested them, they came back positive for gunpowder residue. That was also found on the driver's door handle. 
Now, based on all the forensics, it seems clear that he was the shooter, but Imagini is the one who got life for pulling the trigger. In the fall of 2014, he died of a brain tumor in jail. But I'm skipping ahead a little, and we're not quite there yet. In early December 2010, Shrian was arrested in Bristol. There was no hard evidence of his involvement. All they had were the statements from Tongo, Mbalumbo, and Kwabe, plus the CCTV and cell phone data. None of it looked or sounded good for Shrian, but that's all it was. Appearances. No smoking gun, so to speak. And the biggest question of all was why a newlywed would want to kill the wife he called the girl of his dreams. Are you ready for this? Police believe the answer was in the pronouns. Annie was a girl, and what Shrian really wanted was a man. Now, this is probably a good time to make it super clear that his lifestyle choices are not the problem here. If he wanted to be with a man, then fine, be with a man. The problem is the secrecy, the double life. But it didn't stay secret for long. The case was international news, and people were coming out of the woodwork with tips, many of them saying that Shrian was a regular fixture on Bristol's gay club scene and a frequent customer of a sadomasochistic male escort known as the German Master. His given name was Leopold Lieser. When Shrian was asked to comment on that, he publicly and emphatically denied being attracted to men. But it was true. He had an active account on Gaydar, which is a site for gay and bi men to connect on. And when I say active, I mean he was active on it. He logged in on it regularly during and after their wedding. He was on it during their honeymoon. And yes, he was on it even in the hours after Annie's body was found. When investigators learned about this secret life, they got in touch with the German master. He told them that the last time he'd seen Shrien was in April of 2010. But that's not what made him interesting for the prosecution. Among other things, he claimed Shrian had told him that he was in a relationship with a woman that he couldn't get out of. Is that what Annie discovered about her new husband on their honeymoon? Her family wanted answers. The police wanted answers. But no answers were coming from Shrian. He hired a dream team of lawyers to keep him in the UK and out of South Africa. And they fought extradition for almost four years. They said he was dealing with too much trauma and stress from what happened. They claimed he could not survive a trial, but he could only hold out for so long. In March 2014, he was sent back to Cape Town. By now, the whole world knew about his fetishes and his habits and everything about him. And it was clear that the prosecution was planning to use it to explain his motive. So, when he entered his plea in the courtroom, he preempted their whole case by coming out with it himself. Now, let me explain. In that country, when you enter a plea, you can follow it up with a plea explanation. He pled not guilty and said he was bisexual, but that wasn't a reason for him to kill her. Well, that really took the wind out of the prosecution's sails. But the real blow came when his lawyers argued that nothing the German master had to say about their pillow talk was relevant. And the judge agreed. And just like that, one of their most anticipated witnesses was destroyed. And two years later, he took his own life. 
Next up was Tongo, the star witness, but his story didn't hold up on cross-examination. For one thing, there was the question of the money. He said he was earning up to 30,000 rands a month as a driver, so why would he agree to a murder for hire for a payment of only 5,000 rands? Then there was all the lying. In his first statement, he claimed he was an innocent victim of a carjacking. In his next statement, he claimed Shrian threatened to kill him if he didn't make the murder happen on that Saturday night. But at the trial, he blamed that comment on investigators who took his statement. He had signed it, but suggested that the alleged threat was added later. And along the way to Shrian's trial in 2014, his memory got even worse on some details. By the end of it all, his testimony was such a mess that the defense team filed a motion to dismiss the entire case. Two weeks into the trial, the judge found Shrian not guilty. The only evidence were the statements from the men involved, and they obviously couldn't be trusted. And that was it. After four years, the case was closed. Shrian was free to go. So what's he been up to since then? He still lives in the UK, still runs his family's care home business, and the last we heard, he was in a serious relationship again with a man this time. And when the 10th anniversary of Annie's murder rolled around, he was at the gym, probably for the best. Her family had cut all ties with him, and he wouldn't have been a welcome guest at the memorial they hosted next to the Swedish lake where her ashes were scattered. The last time he said anything publicly about this case was in 2015, and we can sum up his statement in three words. He was framed. And maybe he was. But what if he wasn't? There are convincing arguments for both. Murdered tourists make bad headlines, but if the husband did it, it's not South Africa's fault, and there was a widespread fear that a lot of tourism dollars would be lost in the fallout from this case. But would someone really be so heartless as to hire a stranger to kill his wife on their honeymoon? He'd known Tongo for half an hour when he allegedly struck his devil's bargain. Is another theory more believable? What if Tongo and his accomplices were hoping to collect a big ransom and the murder was an accident? From the moment they approached Tongo in the airport, it was obvious they had money. And why would the gang risk everything to take on a murder for hire for such a small amount of money? They were making more than that in their day jobs. But then again, the CCTV footage looked pretty bad for Shrian. And his lapses in memory didn't help either. Could he really have gone to such lengths to get out of his marriage? The judge said it best. In this case, it's impossible to know where the lies end and the truth begins. What do you think? And that's your recap. Thanks for spending some time with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to us if you would subscribe and give this show a five-star review. It only takes a minute, but it means the world to us. Amy and I are here with new recaps every week. So until next time, take care.